And let us turn together to the book of Zechariah. I trust that our familiarity with Zechariah is increasing throughout our series. You can now find it. It's near the back of the Old Testament. Second last book of the Old Testament. We'll be looking this morning at a relatively well-known passage from this book. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I, am, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God. Lord, we come before you this morning as a people in need of your grace. Speak to us, O Lord, through your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the Savior. This we ask. In the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Where do you go to get hope every day? I don't mean the kind of overarching principles that you guide your life by years and decades by. But I mean in the nitty gritty of each and every day. The times when you have trouble going to sleep because you're worried about your family 
when you regret something you've done earlier that day, and when that snowballs into looking and thinking about all of the things that you have left undone, all of the ways in which you could have improved relationships with others, all of the ways in which you've harmed others, all of the things you've said that you wish you could take back. You see, it's at those points in time when out of the darkness, out of the blue, the attack of the enemy comes. He whispers in your ear that you really are not right with God, that you really are without hope, that you really are a failure. So where do we turn in those difficult times? One place that we should turn always is God's Word. And one specific place where we can find encouragement is our passage today. Zechariah chapter 3. In the book of Zechariah, and perhaps even in all of the Old Testament, there is no more concise passage that speaks about the differences between the great doctrines of justification and sanctification, how we are made right with God, and how that affects our life. And so this morning I would like us to look at the story of Joshua the high priest, a vision that came to the prophet Zechariah. And I'd like us to see two main things this morning. First, we see the need of the sinner, the need of the sinner for salvation by grace to be justified before God. And then secondly, we see the life of the redeemed. For the Christian's life does not end with justification. It carries on as we are sanctified, made more and more holy by a holy God. The need of the sinner and the life of the redeemed. Well, let's begin then by thinking about what God has shown us already through the prophet Zechariah. This is a new vision that is before us. It's the fourth in a series of visions that Zechariah has been given. And the previous three had each shown God's promise of great things to come for the people of Israel. Not once, not twice, but three times God had assured His people with a vision that He had brought them back from exile and that He was going to build them up and that they were going to be the object of His blessing. And so the question might come to us, what could stop Israel from believing these promises? I mean, after all, God is speaking to them in a vision, not once, but over and over again, assuring them of His love and his blessing. What could possibly stop the Israelites from moving forward in faith? And I think the answer is simply their current situation. You see, the Israelites knew that they had already failed. They had given in to idolatry and sin, and as a result, they had been cast into exile. The Jews knew that they had already failed once. And while they were in exile, they were living in Babylon and they were in the midst of the world. And it would have been virtually impossible not to get comfortable with the things of the world. Not to take on the things of the world. To begin speaking with the world's language. Doing what the world does. 
And they could easily look back at that time as a time of failure and faithlessness. But then also they had just returned from exile and they were now in the midst of what seemed to be yet another failure. After all, they had started to rebuild the temple, but had kind of left off from it. So much so that God had sent the prophet Haggai to spur them on. They hadn't even thought about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem yet. They could look around and see that they were so few in number that this second attempt now at God's nation was doomed to failure. Think of all the guilt that they would be carrying at this point in time. It's not unlike what many of us experience as we experience the guilt of our past, knowing all the ways in which we have fallen short, all the ways in which we have failed to follow the Lord, all of the months and years that have been wasted. Where is the hope? The hope is found here in a scene that shifts in this fourth vision. Zechariah is brought into the temple, as it were. The temple pictured as it would have been rebuilt. And Joshua, the high priest, is standing in the temple. But he is not there to serve. It is not a priestly setting. It is more a courtroom setting. He is standing before the angel of the Lord. This phrase, standing before, conjures up the images of a defendant standing at the bench with a judge up high with a big gavel and flowing robes, listening intently and ready to pass judgment. Joshua was the, not just any priest, he was the high priest of Israel. And so in this sense, he represents all of the people. If anyone should be good, it would be Joshua. If anyone would have his act together, it would be the high priest. After all, Joshua had already been a major figure in the return from exile. He was already at work rebuilding the temple, as we see in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 14. But the problem is, in this scene, something is just not right. You see, we know that the one who serves God must be pure... And holy. And one of the things that we know from the history of Israel is that there was a great amount of detail placed on even the garments of the priests, the clothing that they would wear in the service to the Lord. You'll recall the entire second half of the book of Exodus, after the exciting story of getting out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea. And hearing the Ten Commandments, for most of us, if we are reading consecutively through Exodus, it kind of bogs us down a bit. Because there's a long description about what the curtains of the tabernacle will look like and how they will be made. And what the incense is made of and how it will be lit and where it will go. And what the robes will look like and the colors of the thread and the length of them. All of these incredible details for the priests. But the problem here is, not only does Joshua not have the perfect and right clothes, he's a mess. Do you see this here in verse 3? Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. Now, I don't want you to imagine this like perhaps 
you have seen with your kids, or perhaps you've even done this, where you get all dressed up in your best to go to church, or maybe to a wedding, or to a party, and there's a little bit of time between getting dressed and getting in the car and leaving. And sometimes, especially as young people, we decide to use that time between dressing and leaving. We run around the yard, and somehow great pants have green grass stains on them. Or we decide we need a snack, and so a perfectly white shirt has spots of chocolate or sauce upon it. Now, that's not what I mean. This is not some sort of little detail. It's not a small stain that we could try and cover up by crossing our legs. It's not a spot that we could try and move our tie in front of to make it look like the shirt is still white. No, when Zechariah tells us that Joshua is filthy, he means filthy and disgusting. The root word here makes it seem less like a grass stain and more like Joshua has been rolling around and playing in a patch of cow pies. He's filthy. He's dirty. He's disgusting. And if you have ever had the unsavory experience of getting up close with waste of any type, animal or otherwise, you know that once it starts to get on you, you can't get it off you. Your attempts to clean yourself just make you more dirty. And then you notice something else. If you have inadvertently stepped in something and you don't know it, someone who is next to you will look at you and say, what's going on with you? You know, why don't you, why don't you go stand over there? Really? You see, people don't even want to be around you, Right? That's what Joshua is experiencing. He doesn't need to dust himself off. He doesn't need to just straighten his tie. He is filthy and disgusting, and he is standing in the temple of the living God. He is completely inappropriate at this time. Now, this is a picture for us of what we are like outside of Jesus Christ. It's specifically a picture of sin. You see, sin sticks to us. Sin makes us dirty and filthy. It makes us people we don't want to be around. It's awful. But I want to tell you something else. It's not just the kind of sin that we are used to pointing at and saying, that's a wicked person. You see, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just the obvious things that we do wrong that stain us. This filth on Joshua is the best that we can muster. This is working as hard as we possibly can to do right. Trying our best to obey. You see, even our best works are filth. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Filthy and disgusting. You see, even the best that we try to do is marred by our sin. If I were to ask you, 
if you would like to come for lunch and have some soup or a nice stew, and it only has a very small amount of waste in it, would you be excited about that? Of course not. And yet somehow we think that we can present ourselves in our own sin and in our shortcomings to a holy and perfect God. But there's more than that. Because you see, Joshua is not alone. Standing at his right hand is the accuser. It is Satan. He was a deceiver, the tempter, the roaring lion, the murderer. Satan stands ready to accuse him. Now, here we see really what Satan is all about. For some of us, Satan conjures up images of someone in red tights with a tail and pointy ears and a pitchfork. You see, the truth is far more deadly. Satan is the one who stands ready to accuse you, to whisper in your ear that you're worthless. Why don't you kill yourself? Why don't you give up? You'll never amount to anything. You see, that's Satan's title. That's actually what Satan means. It means the adversary, the one who accuses. And you see, it's interesting when it says that Satan stands ready to accuse. We might even say Satan stands ready to Satanize. He's doing exactly what he always does. He's getting ready to accuse God's people. And Satan has a strong case. All you have to do is look at Joshua and you can see what a mess he is. And that's what Satan does. He seeks to discourage us and cut us off from God. He seeks to tell us we can't possibly be saints. We can't possibly find forgiveness. We should just give up. He wants us to give up and to give in. You see, this is his tactic. So what then does Joshua do in response to this? It's interesting, isn't it? He does absolutely nothing. He doesn't try and mount his own defense. He doesn't come up with excuses. It was my environment. It was my upbringing. It was my parents. It was my difficulties. It was where I went. It was these horrible clothes. No. He says nothing because he can't. All of the accusations are true. You need to hear the good news of the gospel is partly this. That any day of the week, Satan can accuse you and he will be perfectly correct. Each and every day there is enough sin in each of us, in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our actions to condemn us before a holy God. But you see, there's something else going on in the story here. You see, it's not just Joshua. It's not just Satan. They stand before the angel of the Lord, Zechariah tells us. Now, we have met this angel before in chapter 1. He is the angel of the Lord who then speaks and is called the Lord as he speaks. You see, this is once again the pre-incarnate Christ. The second person of the Trinity, the messenger of the Lord, who is actually also the Lord. And when Joshua has nothing to say, when we have nothing to say in our defense, guess who speaks? The judge does. 
Jesus rises to our defense. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, he says. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now, there's no more silence in the courtroom. Now there is not only a correction, but there is a strong rebuke, a rebuke that will brook no opposition at all. The final word has been spoken. Now notice, the angel does not say that Joshua is innocent. The angel of the Lord does not say, you know, how dirty one's clothes are really doesn't make a difference. Can't we all just get along? It's not that the case is found lacking against Joshua. It's rather instead that the angel of the Lord defends Joshua. He stands forth and he says, not only is Joshua not guilty, he is immune from prosecution. Satan, stop now. This is what Jesus says to those who have put their trust and faith in him. You see, the angel of the Lord defends Joshua, and he defends him in a very interesting way. The first statement is, he says, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. He says, I defend you because I have chosen you. This takes us back to the great doctrine of election that teaches us that the love of God for His children never depends on their worth. God does not love you because of who you are and what you can do for Him. Now that is shocking to many of us. It offends our sensibilities because that's not the way the world works, is it? The way the world works is, if we want to be loved and respected, we need to perform. We need to show we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We need to actually be a standout in all of the ways. Whether it's in athletics or in academics or whatever, we need to stand out from the crowd. But you see, the scripture tells us that God's choice of his people does not only not depend on their worth, it is in spite of their lack of worth. You remember when God told Israel that he was taking them out of Egypt and leading them to serve him. He didn't say it's because you're a people who are huge, because you've got it all together, because you're great and mighty. He says to them, you were the least of all the people. You see, the truth is that God chooses his children based on his greatness, not theirs. Based on His glory, not theirs. Based on His love alone for them. This is what Paul describes for us in Ephesians 1. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us. You see, when we understand that great truth of God's choice and election, all our doubts should begin to melt away. Because it's not up to us to perform. It's not up to us to keep the standard. Have you ever been in that situation where you're trying to perform at a certain level 
but it's hard, and you don't know how long you can keep it up, the gospel says you can stop trying to keep it up. It doesn't depend on your worth or your performance. It depends on the love of God. And then following this, the Lord says, Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And so we see not only does this relationship depend on God's choice, Joshua is defended also by saying that he is a brand plucked from the fire. God is reminding Joshua and us that it was God who delivered Joshua. And I think oftentimes we in church need to be reminded of this. You see, sometimes the longer we have been saved, the more we think we had something to do with the saving. That it was our great faith. That it was all our Bible study. That it was all the sermons we made a point to listen to. It was all the praying that we did. But you see, the truth again here in God's Word is that we are just brands plucked from the fire of destruction. God knew how filthy Joshua was, and he still saved him. God could have let them perish in Babylon. God could have abandoned them here in the promised land. But instead, with painstaking care, he gathers them up and blesses them. I was trying to think of a way to describe that. And what came to mind to me was the way that some folks are so earnest and eager to rebuild car engines. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to have a car engine that were a problem, I would immediately throw it out and get a new one. I could not be bothered with trying to fix this. You know, you watch people uh, describe fixing a car engine to you, whether it's in person or on social media, and it's something that takes days, weeks, months. There's all kinds of grit and grime involved. There's, there's things that are done that are hard. You see, that's in a sense what God does with His people. He takes things that are broken and useless And most would just look at it and say, dump it, get rid of it. And he rebuilds it back to what it is supposed to be. Why? Because he wants to. Because he takes glory in it. You see, that is the truth of our salvation. It's not because we're the finest and the best. It's because God delights in saving his people. He who calls you is faithful, Paul says. He will surely do it. You see, this is the way the Lord works in our lives. But how can this be then? How can God come into our lives as filthy as we are and bring us to Himself? That goes against what we know God is like. God is one who is of pure eyes than to look upon evil. It goes against what we know God expects of us. The Bible tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So how can it possibly be that we can be right with God? It can be because we see the wonder of God's work in cleansing His people. Do you see what He does to Joshua? He declares, take off His filthy clothes and put on pure vestments. You see, God takes away our sin. 
He makes it as if it was never there to start with. And He clothes us with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this clothing that is put on Joshua is not just clean. It's clean and it's royal. And it is party clothing. It is festival clothing. God is building Joshua up beyond anything that he ever thought he could be. This is the great transaction of justification, isn't it? Our sin is put on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is put on us. It's why the Bible speaks over and over again about salvation in terms of clothing. The prophet Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. We know that is the end of the faithful. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You see, this is the work of the living God in our midst, making us pure and right and holy. And there is a crowning glory that comes to us. Because you see, Zechariah is all caught up in this. He's so excited, he can't keep quiet. He doesn't know you're not supposed to talk in a vision. And he says, put a clean turban on him too. Put a clean turban on him. You see, he wants the picture completed. He wants to see Joshua crowned with glory, to know that he is completely accepted. And this, after all, is the reply that we have to the accusations of the enemy of Satan. Christ has taken away my sin. Christ has given me purpose and righteousness. It is not what I have done, it is who Christ is and what he has done. But you see, the Christian life doesn't end at being right with God. There is also the life of the redeemed. And Zechariah picks this up in verse 6. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. You see, the Christian's life does not end with freedom from guilt. That's part of what this picture of the turban is about. You see, the Lord wants us to know that we are accepted and we have a future. This is the second of the great truths of salvation. It is the doctrine of sanctification. In justification, we have no ability. In justification, we are completely passive and receive the righteousness of Christ. In justification, God God cleanses us. But in sanctification, we are born again. And we have the Spirit of God who enables us by the power of God to follow the will of God. By His grace, God uses us. And by His grace, God makes us more and more holy. And this holiness first is a personal thing. If you will walk in my ways, the Lord says. And this refers to your life. It's not a stroll down a lane. It's not even a hike. Walking in the ways of the Lord is living according to His word. 
to following His path, to acknowledging that He is God and He is King. We're not so sure that we can be right with Him, even though we already are. But He calls us to it. This is, after all, the story of the woman at the well, isn't it? She was caught in a horrible sin and was ready to be stoned. And after Jesus says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, and they have all dispersed, he tells her that she is forgiven. But does he leave her where she is? What are his last words to her? Go and sin no more. You see, the Lord redeems us to holiness, to be a part of his people, to follow after him. He also redeems us that we might serve him. There is a service to the Lord that we provide. This is what, Josh, what Zechariah means when he says, Keep my charge. You may not have realized this, but as a Christian, you have a job. There's a reason why God has left you here on planet Earth. And your job is to go beyond yourself to be ambassadors of the living God in this world. How can we possibly serve the God of glory if we have not been changed? You see, that's what's happened here to Joshua He has been cleansed of his iniquity. He has been clothed with righteousness. And now he is to keep his charge. He is to serve the living God and to bring the message of the gospel of grace to a world around him. It's a reminder that we are always under the authority and the grace of God. Joshua is told that he will have greater access to the courts of God. You know, oftentimes we wonder how could we have a deeper relationship with God. Is that something you desire? Do you want to more deeply know God? If that's true, you must seek after His will. That is how you grow in the depth of your relationship with Christ. You seek His will and you follow it. For it is in Christ that all of our purpose and glory is found. Joshua is reminded of this when he is told that he and all the men around him are a sign. They are a portent of something to come. And that someone is the Messiah. As great as what has happened here to to Joshua and Zechariah, there is yet something more still to come. The servant of the Lord is coming, the Lord says. He says, I will bring my servant... The one who will put all things right. The one who ever lives to serve. This is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant. He is also the branch, Zechariah tells us. He is the one that when all seems lost, God brings life through. Perhaps you've had this kind of gardening experience. You have a plant or a small tree that is dying or even looks dead. When you have that kind of a situation, do you just dump more soil and water on top of it and hope for the best? No, if you have it, what you do is you see if there's a shoot, a branch that is green and alive, and you take it and you tenderly plant that 
in soil. And you water that and it brings forth new life. That is a picture of the Messiah of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where there is only death and destruction, Jesus brings life. He brings it to the universe. He brings it to His church. And He brings it to your life. New life springs anew for you in Jesus. He is the Lord's servant. He is the Lord's branch. And He is also the Lord's stone. You see here that a large stone is set before Joshua. The stone reminds us of the foundation of all that God does. Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected and became the cornerstone of the temple of God. You see, the Lord reminds us that as great as the blessings are that we see, there is yet greater to come. How is Jesus greater than Joshua? How is Jesus greater than the Old Testament sacrifices? First and foremost, the Old Testament sacrifices were inadequate. They could not finally take away sin. Secondly, they were incomplete. They had to be done over and over again. But Jesus performs the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews tells us in chapter 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people. Jesus does not need to offer sacrifice for himself. He is perfect. And he performs the perfect sacrifice because Jesus is the sacrifice. He is a perfect sacrifice for the blood of goats and of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes could not ever purify. But the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will purify our conscience from dead works. Thirdly, Jesus is better because his sacrifice is complete and eternal. He not only performs it perfectly, He not only is the perfect sacrifice, it is a complete and eternal sacrifice. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 10 tells us. You see, we can know and understand the coming of Jesus tells us that good things are here. But finally, we see in verses 9 and 10, that also the best is yet to come. Do you see it here in verse 9? I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, declares the Lord. You see, what God tells us is He is bringing about peace. That we might have peace with God. Now, from Zechariah's perspective, this is a future thing. But for we who live in our day and age and who know the historical fact of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have experienced it and our faith is in what God has already done. But also on some level there is still peace to come. For peace will be brought on a cosmic level. Even though we can know peace with God through the blood of Christ, there's still war, isn't there? There's still violence. 
There's still enmity. But you see, there will come a day when all of that will be gone and there will be peace on earth. Peace because of what Jesus has done. And what we will also experience is what is found in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You see, there will not only be peace, there will be the blessings of salvation that will rain down upon us. There will be the peaceful dominion of the Lord among us. To understand the gravity of verse 10, you have to think about living in a world without air conditioning, and without a grocery store. If you picture that, what could be better in a hot land than sitting under the shade of a tree where you could reach up with your hand and get something to eat? You see, that kind of blessing, that picture of blessedness is what God wants you to see. That is what He has in store for His children It is a symbol of God making everything right for His people. That's our hope, isn't it? Our hope is that God makes us right in Jesus Christ. And our hope is that God will make all things right in Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That no matter how dirty and filthy and worthless we are, God, for His own good pleasure, has set His love upon His people and sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die the death that they deserve, to pay the penalty in the courtroom that they deserve. That they might be clothed with His righteousness, that they might know the peace that He brings, and they might receive the blessings that come from His hand. That's the good news of the gospel. Do you believe it? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And you can know that kind of peace and blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us by your prophet. Lord, help us to know and understand the depth of what you have done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none like Him. He has indeed taken our sin and given us His righteousness. For this we praise Him, not just now, but all our days. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.